A listener note before you begin. We're launching a three-week Ask an Expert podcast series about all things free speech, online censorship and deplatforming, campus speech and cancel culture, education and book bans. So here's where you come in. We want to answer your questions. What does the law say about social media companies deplatforming users? Does our constitution support cancel culture? If you have a question you'd like us to answer, call us and leave us a message at 212-549-2558. That's 212-549-2558. Or email us at podcast at aclu.org. Okay, now on to the show. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall C. Smyer, the executive producer of this podcast. And as of today, I'm excited to announce that I'm taking the reins as At Liberty's new host. I'm a journalist by trade. And while at the ACLU, I've produced over 150 At Liberty episodes. Loyal listeners may remember me hosting from time to time, but I'm delighted and honored to take the mic with more consistency. And I promise to continue to bring you the most important conversations around civil rights and civil liberties. So let's get to it. On June 1st, 2020, Black Lives Matter protesters gathered in Lafayette Square Park near the White House to protest against police brutality and the police killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. In a violation of civil rights and what the New York Times named one of the most defining moments of the Trump presidency— Then, President Trump and his administration called upon law enforcement to use force and violence to remove protesters from the area, without warning. A short while later, President Trump walked across the street to nearby St. John's, a church, for a photo opportunity. Protesters and media personnel were attacked, hurt, and tear-gassed. In response, the ACLU of D.C. filed to sue President Trump, Attorney General Barr, Secretary of Defense Esper, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, and numerous other federal officials on behalf of Black Lives Matter D.C. and other plaintiffs affected. And while what happened on June 1st shocked many of us, for civil rights activists, it was a very familiar story, something to add to a long list of similar incidents. Freedom of speech and assembly are important tools in the fight for civil rights, But these rights, when exercised by Black Americans, are frequently met with violent pushback from authorities. Today, we are looking back on this event in light of the ACLU of D.C.'s case against federal officials and in light of the Biden administration's new policy changes meant to ensure that this never happens again. Tony Sanders, a local D.C. activist and one of our plaintiffs in Black Lives Matter D.C. versus Trump, remembers June 1st, 2020, like it was yesterday. I went out there with my family um, on June 1st, and we went out there because so many things had been happening on the news. And my stepson, who was nine at the time, he had seen these things, and he started to question us. What does this mean? We wanted to give him a firsthand experience of what activism could be. You know, um, a peaceful protest. 
you know, let's go, let's go and exercise our First Amendment rights. Let's stand up for uh, some of these folks who have been murdered by the state. You know, we talked to him about different things that he had seen. He, of course, he had seen George Floyd, you know, on the television. And so we we talked about that incident. We even talked about, you know, some children, uh, such as Ayanna Stanley, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, you know, children who had been senselessly killed, you know, by the state. And he wanted to have a chance to stand up for these folks. And he asked, you know, was it would it be safe if he went there? And we assured him, yes, it's going to be safe. We're going to take care of you. Everything will be fine. Now, we knew that there was a curfew in place and the curfew was set for 7 p.m. So our intent was always to leave before the curfew took place. You know, again, we have a small child. We would not do anything to put him intentionally in harm's way. So we went down um, to what's now Black Lives Matter Plaza. We went down and, you know, he was a little uncomfortable at first because, of course, there's a heavy police presence there. But as he began to walk around and, and see the different people and see the atmosphere of the crowd, he began to be more at ease. You know, he I, I, at one point he even looked at me and said, wow, there's so many white people here. And I said to him, well, of course, you know, why wouldn't there be? He said, you know, they care. I said, yeah, they do. You know, um, there are quite a few white people who do care about what's going on um, to, with black people in society. And he felt comfortable, which was the main point. He felt comfortable with the way people were expressing themselves, and he felt as if he was making an impact just by being there. And then suddenly, he got another lesson in life, and that lesson would be that the state can turn on you. And, you know, we're, we're standing there, we're, over, we're actually over by the church, and we hear these loud sounds, boom, boom. And I'm looking around, and all of a sudden, you can kind of smell in the air the, the tear gas. And I, I knew the smell because I had been out there prior nights where things had happened. And I just yelled at my wife and my stepson. I said, run, run. And she grabbed his hand and we all just took off running. I mean, it, there's chaos all around us. But all I could try to do was focus on these two people running in front of me because, of course, I don't want to lose them in the midst of all this chaos. You know, we're, we're running towards the car and, you know, just trying to get out of there. People are falling, you know, it, it's screaming. We're just trying to get to a safe space. And when we got to an area that we thought was safe enough to catch our breath, you know, I, I looked at him and I said, are you okay? And he looked at me and he said, I can't believe I just survived my first near-death experience. And I looked at my wife, we looked at each other because there was nothing we could say to counter that because we didn't know what was going on. So we don't, all we know is they're, they're tear gassing us. People are running, they're screaming and shoving and we're frightened. We don't know who is attacking us or why we're being attacked. And it's well before curfew at this point. So again, I, I couldn't understand why we were being attacked, uh, why we were being forcibly, you know, pushed into an area. We had just had a moment of silence where people were kneeling before we were being attacked. So there was no violence that you had seen? 
There was none whatsoever. There was nothing that could even have made me uncomfortable, you know, from people. Everyone, it was a community. It was a community out there. We rode home in silence, um, kind of just trying to gather the moment. And um, I remember when we got to the house, I told them, I said, you know, you guys, you're, you're here safe now. I need to go back out there. I need to go. And, you know, he actually cried. He didn't want me to leave. He was afraid. And every night thereafter that I went out to protest, he had trouble sleeping. You know, he he questioned for my, for my safety. You know, he was worried that something was going to happen to me. He actually told one of his teachers, you know, that the government was trying to kill Black people. Um, and, it, and it was at that point, you know, we realized, oh, you know, we have to do something to try to counter this trauma, this trauma that he just experienced. And that, at that point, we, you know, we put him in therapy to try to help him cope with everything that happened. I mean, it was it was a traumatic experience for us all. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I think as a I'm sure as a parent, that is extremely hard to hear and to feel. And I think that that's true for a lot of folks who were there at that time. You know, President Trump said that day, actually, that he was an ally of peaceful protesters. How does that make you feel hearing this, knowing that the, you know, federal officials around him were the ones who had given those dispersal orders? It is not surprising, um, and it's not surprising because a government official saying that he's an ally to something that their actions have shown they're against is American history. Um, you think about our uh, founding fathers writing, all men are created equal while owning slaves. So none of that is actually surprising to me. Our system um, has always upheld this belief of um, Black people not being citizens, of not being worthy of equal treatment and rights. And June 1st is just another example of the system being the system. Tony and our other clients who were hurt protesting that day decided to take a stand, allowing the ACLU of D.C. to file lawsuits in the hopes of receiving damages and establishing both policy change and precedent. So very quickly, I mean, almost immediately, we decided we were going to do something about this, and, and there had to be a response. This is Scott Michaelman, the legal director of the ACLU of D.C. and counsel in Black Lives Matter D.C. versus Trump. You know, there, there are a lot of times when we see violations of civil rights and liberties, and we're outraged, and then we put our lawyer hats on and think to ourselves, what, what tools does the law give us for this? This was not that kind of case. This isn't a question of, are we sure we're going to win? And, and do we balance the pros and cons? This is a defining moment in constitutional history, and we have to stand up for our rights and our values. And so within three days, we, with allies, co-counsel, including the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, their national arm, and law firm of Arnold and Porter, uh, filed a lawsuit on behalf of Black Lives Matter DC, which was a repeat client for us and has been a great partner in so much of our racial justice work in DC, along with several individual protesters whose stories we felt really epitomized the, the trauma and violence and violations of the day. 
And so uh, among our plaintiffs, we had people who were terrified, people who were beaten, people who were tear gassed. We had a military veteran. We had someone who tried hard to help a bleeding man on the steps of St. John's Church. We had someone who had her knee bashed in after she tried to pick up her phone after she was struck a first time by law enforcement officers. We had the stepmother of a nine-year-old boy whose family was, was terrified and whose son, also a plaintiff, the nine-year-old later said to her, please don't go demonstrate. I, I don't know if you'll come back. That's Tony Sanders, who we just heard from. And so th- there was so much trauma and pain coming out of that date. And so it was the ultimate irony that the protest about racial justice and police brutality was scattered, dispersed, destroyed by racial injustice and police brutality. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect storm of civil rights violations. So now we push forward a year later. On June 21st of 2021, the court came back and dismissed the constitutional damages claims against all of the federal officials. They said, holding federal officials cannot, they cannot be sued for monetary compensation for violating constitutional rights when they do so against a crowd near the White House because of presidential security, regardless of whether or not the security actually justified the act. Uh, They also dismissed conspiracy claims. Uh, The ruling permitted First Amendment claims to proceed against District of Columbia officers because D.C. officers are local rather than federal. But the court also ruled that the Fourth Amendment does not protect against excessive force used to disperse people rather than to detain them. What did you make of this decision? You know, this is a year later after you've put in all of this work. How did you piece through what what came back at you guys? Well, obviously it was disappointing on the whole, and there are a number of strands that that we disagree with in in some cases quite strongly. It it is worth noting some some bright spots in the decision. The decision to to deny the motions to dismiss by the D.C. defendants who were stationed a block away from Lafayette Square and attacked demonstrators with tear gas as they fled— reflected a great First Amendment analysis and overcame the powerful defense of qualified immunity, which protects officers even when they violate the Constitution if their violation wasn't, in the view of the courts, quote, clearly established, which is a, a troubling and, and, and strict, yet somehow strangely malleable standard um, that has led to a ton of, of officials getting off even where they violate the Constitution. And so the court said, yes, any reasonable officer should have known you can't attack protesters unprovoked and and who haven't done anything wrong. Um, That was great. But it is an incredible irony that at the same time, the court held we could not sue the federal officials who did the same thing and really, really kicked off the, the violence and really were the catalyzing force for... Um, for the whole assault. Um, and, and the reason for that was it was a different doctrine called Bivens. So at the very beginning of the Republic, the one thing that was clear is provisions like the First Amendment protecting freedom of speech and the Fourth Amendment protecting against unreasonable seizures like excessive force would have restrained federal officers. And yet, in a series of hostile decisions 
uh, from the Supreme Court as it's gotten more conservative, the court has stripped away the idea that you can sue for constitutional violations by federal officers and receive damages, even though Congress has said you can do that for state officials. It feels like a very political decision when you hear that it's, you know, the Supreme Court saying the federal officials can't be held accountable for these actions. And I wonder, you know, how that holds up in the future. I, I think I think the Bivens doctrine and the, the debate over it is is far from over. I think it's going to have to come to a head. Either the Supreme Court and, and the lower courts are going to have to relax their harsh treatment of these types of claims, maybe because of this type of violation. If even this, the violation of the First Amendment, the violation of the Fourth Amendment, the, the scattering of protesters right next to the White House, which the D.C. Circuit has described as a unique place for First Amendment assembly and First Amendment speech, the wanton violence, if, if all of that doesn't justify a constitutional claim, something is wrong with this doctrine. And I think if the Supreme Court doesn't fix it, we might see Congress step in to say, yes, actually, we, we do want this. Because what it does, effectively, it creates constitutional impunity. The federal officers are not responsible for the Constitution anymore if they can't be held accountable for violating constitutional rights. And and to say that that any decision to uh, to act against protesters by violence or, or even clearing them unnecessarily in violation of their First Amendment rights is beyond the reach of the courts because it's next to the White House effectively creates a constitution-free zone at the at one of the worst possible places that is right where people gather to make their voice heard most effectively. Yeah, it's an extremely dangerous precedent. It feels very authoritarian in some ways. Um, so where, where does this case stand now? Well, we're very pleased to announce uh, on April 13th that we were able to reach a partial settlement with the Biden administration. The deal was for us to release our claims for injunctive relief, that is, that is a court order seeking to prevent this from happening again, for policies, policy changes of the Park Police and the Secret Service that we do think will have a significant effect on preventing something like this from happening again, including the requirement of dispersal orders that are audible, the requirement of a safe route to disperse, the limitations, restrictions on who can authorize the use of force, uh, the requirement that park police be clearly identified on their outerwear so that they're not difficult to sue and hold accountable, restrictions on uh, when park police can revoke demonstration permits, restrictions on the way the Secret Service might try to use unlawful activity by a few people in a crowd to justify a broader use of force or dispersal. These are all significant changes that we think institutionally will move the park police and the Secret Service away from the type of, uh, the, the type of action we saw on, on June 1st. And we commend the Biden administration for recognizing that, that something was wrong here and this ought never to happen again. At the same time, we're continuing to pursue accountability through the damages claims against the, both the federal officials and the uh, 
the DC officials because it's important both to prevent a recurrence, but also to hold wrongdoers accountable. We're going to be asking the court for permission to appeal the dismissal of the federal officers because they are so central to the case and what happened. Um, and so, so we'll we'll be we'll be working on that next. Um, we do hope to have an opportunity to get the ruling reviewed to make clear that there should not be a constitution-free zone, particularly in Lafayette Square, but but nowhere. I mean, the the idea that the Constitution just doesn't apply, that that people, that, that federal officers are, are not responsible at all for their constitutional violations is really anathema to the rule of law and the idea of having a Constitution. I want to kind of broaden the conversation here because we know that what happened at Lafayette Square Park was not an isolated incident. And you've said this as much, right? Both in D.C. and across the country. But also, when we look back in history, the Black community has faced a lot of violence when exercising their constitutional rights to protest. I mean, the civil rights movement itself, in a lot of ways, really uh, solidified a lot of our free speech rights that we have today. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the importance of free speech and the fight for racial equality. Absolutely. And I think free speech and racial justice are sometimes in the discourse pitted against each other, but free speech is a critical tool for racial justice because so often when people are oppressed and marginalized, their voices are the only thing they have. One of the key precedents we rely on in the Lafayette Square case is Edwards against South Carolina, which is about a racial justice demonstration at the South Carolina State House. Uh, a lot of our most important free speech principles come from the 60s and come from cases in which racial justice demonstrators, Black people, were asserting their rights and, and using their voices, Black people and, and their allies. Um, and, and so that is such a critical part of, of, of the movement when you think about how people who are marginalized and, and who, are, who are unheard and unseen can, can change the dynamic. And so, so I think this case is a very potent illustration of that. It's also an illustration of how Black protesters and protesters for racial justice have met with differential treatment and are often the ones most vulnerable to having their First Amendment rights denied. And there's no starker example of that than the contrast between June 1st, 2020 at the White House and January 6th, 2021 at the Capitol. The Capitol insurrectionists, who were mostly white, who had a right-wing message and were perceived by law enforcement as pro-law enforcement, met with a res- were met with a response that was underprepared, um, tepid, late, and most of them were able to breach the United States Capitol by force and then walk away. Contrast that with the treatment of the Black Lives Matter protesters at Lafayette Square on June 1st, who were singing and chanting and holding signs, were in a public place, no, no, laws were broken, no federal buildings were breached, they were met with overwhelming force. And so the contrast between 
the way law enforcement responded to protesters who were white with a right-wing message versus um, versus black or of, of, of many races, frankly, and uh, and with a racial justice message is is incredibly stark and and illustrates the long way we have to go, not only toward a full uh, recognition and acceptance of free speech rights, but also toward racial justice, racial justice in law enforcement, whether it be law enforcement every day on the street or law enforcement at protests. Yeah, that is the example that also comes up in my mind when looking at a, you know, in a compare and contrast way of how how protest is met with response. So Park Police Chief Gregory Monahan has said that the Park Police's actions were necessary due to violent protesters who threw objects like bricks at law enforcement. Protesters deny being violent. Um, that got me thinking a lot about this choice of the word violence and also who is who who we end up deeming violent. Well, well first let me let me say that I think the uh, all of the explanations from Trump administration officials for the violence, their violence at Lafayette Square have been shifting, disingenuous, many of them, frankly, incredible. The government spent a lot of time justifying what they did based on other acts of alleged violence in other places in the district on other days. So they said, well, you know, people were violent. People had been violent yesterday. People had been violent or broken windows two days ago. So, you know, people were protesting and we just, you know, we just had to attack them. And, and that's, just, that's just constitutionally a non sequitur. That's a part of this longer legacy of kind of over-attributing violence to Black protesters versus white protesters. I mean, we have to address the fact that it this is racism. Like this is this has roots in in racism. Yeah, the DC police chief in speaking about the Capitol insurrection said that he said straight out that we we prepared in a certain way because we perceived that the people who are coming to the Capitol on that day were pro law enforcement. And so that I mean that is, you know, that's viewpoint discrimination or right. at least viewpoint bias. Right. That 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 they, you know, they had in their mind a certain type of person, a certain message, and certain conduct that would or wouldn't be associated with that message. Uh, another big example of, um, on the other side, of guilt by association policing was on Trump's inauguration. When we saw, we, we did see acts of vandalism in the District of Columbia, but the the MPD response, the, the DC police's response, was to conduct a mass arrest and use excessive force on hundreds of people, um, rather than try to isolate individuals who had broken the law and try to enforce the law against individuals. They used it as an excuse to do a mass roundup, a mass detention. They ended up prosecuting more than 200 people for quote rioting, and nearly all the charges were dropped or thrown out, or to the extent they went to uh, uh, jury trials, the, the jury acquitted because uh, because it was a, a total case of guilt by association, both in the police response and in the prosecutions. What would you say about how important this case is in the larger conversation around free speech? I think that the case holds significance beyond the injuries to our individual protesters. It was a dramatic world 
watched event. And, and I think we, we owe it to the country to take a strong stand against the type of violence and suppression of dissent that we saw on that day uh, to make clear that, yes, we do have a functioning First Amendment in this country, and this is not how we conduct ourselves in the United States of America with the First Amendment. For Tony, the Biden administration's policy changes have helped her heal. Knowing other parents who take their children to protests will hopefully be protected from what happened to her and her stepson. Honestly, I'm proud. I'm, I'm really proud of the strides that the uh, lawsuit has made thus far. You know, we were able to get some policy changes implemented. And one of those being, uh, one, one of the most important to me, actually, being that um, they must provide audible warnings before dispersing a crowd. Because again, had we heard anything, we would not be in this situation because we would have left. Again, we had a child with us. Had we heard someone say, please move from this area, we, have, we would have easily moved to a different area. And the other being um, that the officers' names have to now be on their outerwear and their, and their helmets. They can't you know, hide who they are when they're out doing these things anymore. So those things, they make me proud uh, because I know just based on society, and the history of America, there are going to have to be more protests. We're going to have to keep saying Black Lives Matter. And so for me, the next generation being able to go out there and protest and knowing that there are these sanctions in place where they can remain safe while they exercise their God-given rights of protest, you know, that makes me feel good. That That is, you know, one of those things where I can say to myself, well done. You know, uh, I went through that trauma and at least something came out of that trauma. Tangible. Yeah, I can imagine that it's meaningful to be a part of that history. So, and thinking about your experience now, you know, it's been a couple of years and you're finally hearing the Biden administration give some kind of policy change. Um Meanwhile, the uh, the litigation continues. How are you feeling about all of this now? I remain positive. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see the policy changes. Uh, I am looking forward to our next steps um, where we can we will continue to fight for punitive damages. Um, you know, again, all of the press protesters that were involved in this horrific assault <laughs> on unprovoked protesters, I want to see punitive damages awarded because a lot of times, uh, the only times people understand here in America is when money talks. You know, I'm, I'm here for the policy changes, but I'm also here for making the money talk. People experience trauma. You know, there's therapy that needs to be paid for. You know, there are people's lives who are, who have been impacted. Like there are legal things that are going on, you know, from protests where they were unjustly arrested, beaten and, and withheld and whatever. And at, at some point, you know, we, we've got to make sure justice is done. It's never too late for justice 
to take place. Never too late. Yes, it's two years later, but get the fight continues because it, it, it's never too late for us to get the outcome that we deserve. And what do you want people at home who are listening to this conversation to know about your experience, the experience of the other plaintiffs, and also what they can, what they can do? Uh, I would say for me, my takeaway is don't stop protesting. No matter what, protest. And protest doesn't necessarily mean that you physically have to be out in that space because everybody has a lane. If you just want to be at home and donate money, please feel free to to donate. If you feel like your place is to donate supplies, please donate supplies. Do whatever it is that your heart is calling you to do. And sometimes it's something as simple as I'm mentoring a kid. That too is you protesting the system because you're fighting against these stereotypes. You're bringing this kid into a better environment and and exposing them to different things. Whatever your lane is, Stay in that lane and know that no matter what anyone else says, you're making an impact. Thank you so much, Tony, for your time and for your bravery and for using your voice on this issue. Um, We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you to all the listeners out there who are tuning in. And uh, you're keeping the fight going just by listening. You're keeping it going. You're keeping the the word out there. So thank you. Thanks so much to Tony Sanders and Scott Michaelman for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.